Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're taking a one-week break from our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and we have here a lecture on Apocalypse and the book of Revelation from Peter Lightheart. This is from our Theopolis course, Going Through the Book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart and James Jordan. This was the first lecture of that week, and the entire course can be found on the Theopolis app. You can sign up for that app at the website app.theopolisinstitute.com. There's also a link down there in the show notes for you. And you can go ahead and use the code THEOPOLITAN to receive your first month free for the Theopolis app. Again, you can sign up for an account at app.theopolisinstitute.com. And after you create an account, you can download the app from your app store, log in, and then you're off to the races. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Peter Lightheart lecturing on the topic of apocalypse and an introduction to the book of Revelation. So let me read those verses and then pray, and we'll begin. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must shortly take place... And he sent and signified it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the revelation of yourself uh, in history, in your Son, Jesus, and in the pages of Scripture. We thank you for this book in particular, when you've unveiled yourself to us and opened up your purposes and your work in history. We thank you for the preservation of this book for our use and for our study. Uh, We pray that your spirit, the spirit that inspired this book, the spirit that guided John as he wrote it, we pray that that spirit would be among us. And as we listen, as we converse, as we read together and study together, and as we worship together, we pray that you would deepen our understanding of your word, that you would conform us more to your son, Jesus Christ, that by your spirit would be illuminated and enlightened we burn brightly like lights in the world. We pray that you would prepare us through this book to be faithful witnesses as Jesus Christ himself is uh, during a dark and difficult time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be uh, using those verses that I've read uh, as jumping off points for talking uh, a bit about a revelation in contemporary scholarship. That's going to be a, a large focus, but I'll be doing that hopefully cleverly and expertly woven together with exegesis of the passage itself. 
We'll see if that actually happens. Well, I want to begin with a few comments about why we want to study Revelation. What are we attempting to do? Uh, we have a couple of negative reasons you can imagine. You think about misinformation that's uh, widespread about Revelation, uh, the idea that Revelation somehow gives us a template uh, for contemporary events, that it's revealing uh, events of the Middle East, and that we're when we see things happening in the Middle East, we see uh, uh, things happening in Europe, but that's uh, a sign that uh, what's uh, a sign that the, the uh, events of Revelation are coming to pass. That's been a perennial problem in the church. It's not been just a modern problem. It's been a perennial problem, as uh, some of your reading has indicated, to uh, take the book of Revelation as immediately relevant uh, in that way to contemporary events and to see it as prophesying contemporary events. Uh, that's not something that started with dispensationalism or in the 19th century. That's been a recurring problem in the church. So part of the intention of studying Revelation in some depth is to try to correct those misperceptions. If you're in a church or you're planning to be a pastor in a church at some point, then you're going to encounter people who have had uh, Revelation taught to them in all sorts of ways uh, that uh, I think are misleading and, and mistaken. So you'll have to be able to provide not just a critique of those ways of reading, but you also want to provide a positive uh, way of reading the, reading the book. Revelation also provides a massive uh, hermeneutical exercise for us. It's one of the most biblically rich books of the Bible. It brings the entire Bible to its conclusion. And the entire Bible is kind of summed up and advanced and brought to a climax by the book of Revelation. Uh, there aren't a lot of direct quotations in Revelation. There are some, uh, there aren't, but there aren't a lot of direct quotations but almost every sentence of the book of Revelation has some reference back to the Old Testament, frequently some reference back to the Gospels, an event of the Gospels, or even events in the book of Acts. So the entire Bible is at work in Revelation. The entire Bible is kind of being bundled together and brought into play in Revelation. So uh, um, Revelation provides a way of a, a test uh, and a, a, a way of honing our skills in interpreting text, interpreting the biblical text, and in understanding how to do that. And I think if we, we do that properly, I think we can cut through some of the debates and differences that have come up over the years in, different, uh, in interpretations of Revelation. It's common, as uh, most of you know, it's common to divide up interpretive, interpretive frameworks for Revelation into four categories. Evangelicals, at least, are in the habit of doing this. There are futurist interpretations that see the book of Revelation as predicting something that is still future for the reader in the present day, a set of events that's still coming, still on the horizon for us. And so dispensationalist readings of Revelation would be futurist readings. There are historicist readings that see Revelation as a uh, an allegorical depiction of church history. This was popular during the Reformation and post-Reformation eras. Uh, Revelation was seen as predicting some of the events surrounding uh, the Reformation itself, and the harlot that appears at the, toward the end of the book of Revelation, Babylon, uh, was uh, seen as a picture of a false church, uh, a picture of the Roman Catholic Church, which had turned from the true God and become a harlot and was, uh, in, the, in the 16th century, beginning to drink the blood of the Protestant martyrs. Luther found Turks in, <laughs> in the book of Revelation, and lots of other people did too, uh, threatening Europe. Uh, Islam on the rise. So you can, uh, it has been read as uh, a, an allegory of church history as a whole, not just the Reformation era, but 
the period of the collapse of the Roman Empire, invasions from the barbarians, uh, the, the, trumpet, the trumpet section has been interpreted by some historicist interpreters as, uh, as a prediction of the collapse of Rome and the Western Empire. Uh, and you can uh, you have historicist readings that trace the entire book of Revelation and see the entire book as a, as a uh, prediction of church history. Kind of like um, Dante gives us uh, this uh, pageant of the history of the church at the end of Purgatory. Uh, he gets to the top of Mount Purgatory, and th- there's this uh, this uh, parade going on, and it's a, an allegorical depiction of church history. You have a fox that slips into the to, into the uh, chariot of the church, which is the fox of heresy, and then you have uh, gold that uh, cracks open the chariot and and, uh, and weighs it down. Uh, Dante is sounding like a Franciscan. It's the wealth of the church that uh, that slows it down and makes it sluggish and keeps it from fulfilling its mission. That's the way that Revelation is read by historicists. You have idealist readings, uh, which uh, disconnect the book of Revelation from any particular set of historical circumstances. It's not about events that are future for us. It's not about the history of the church, but it, rather it's about certain principles and patterns that recur throughout the course of human history. And so there are wars and rumors of wars. There are earthquakes in many places. That happens over and over again through history. And so what you find in Revelation is prediction of recurring, uh, recurring events. Uh, and in particular, you have a prediction or a, a revelation of the uh, spiritual battles that are at the heart of the church's life. You have an, uh, a portrait of the uh, spiritual warfare that is the church's mission, uh, battling uh, against principalities and powers and uh, in high places and, and uh, wickedness in high places. And then, of course, you have preterist readings. We're going to be offering a preterist readings, a preterist reading this week, as you might expect. And a preterist reading takes seriously what John says at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. In verse 1, these are things which, I always have trouble saying this phrase, uh, have to slow way down, which must shortly take place. You try that yourself. Which must shortly take place, you just kind of mush it together. Things which must shortly take place, things that are about to happen, and then he says it again in verse 3, the time is near, says it again at the end of the book, uh, this is going to happen soon. And so you have uh, ref- time references at the beginning and the end of the book uh, that indicate that uh, John is writing something, writing about something that's uh, about to happen, uh, that's going to take place in the lifetimes of his first readers, uh, or uh, within, within, a, within a short time after the production of the book. That raises questions about dating that I'll address uh, later this morning. Um, but um, a preterist reading would take that seriously. There are varieties of preterist readings, of course. There are preterist readings that focus in on the turmoil surrounding the Jewish war uh, in the mid, uh, mid to late 60s A.D. and see a lot of the predictions as having to do with uh, the conflicts uh, w- between the Jews and the Romans and the slaughter of Jews and so on. Uh, our interpretation is going to be, be more ecclesiologically centered and see the book of Revelation uh, preteristically. That is, it's about things that are shortly going to take place, but it's about uh, primarily about what's happening with the church in the first century, in the middle of the first century. Now, I said if we, uh, if we learn to read the book rightly, I, I suggest that we could cut through those debates. We can kind of bypass uh, the question or at least kind of incorporate the insights of those different approaches uh, you have futurist, historicist, idealist, and preterist readings. Uh, I want to suggest that if we 
learn to read the Bible rightly, and the book of Revelation in particular rightly, then we can incorporate insights from all of those different perspectives. And, of course, reading the book of Revelation rightly, reading the Bible rightly means using the quadriga. Okay, we all know that, don't we? Uh, using the fourfold method of medieval interpretation, there's a literal sense to the text. There is an allegorical sense. There's a tropological sense. There is an anagogical sense. The literal sense is that uh, Revelation is about a particular set of historical circumstances. It's predicting things, sometimes reviewing things that have already happened, uh, but also predicting things that are about to happen. And it has actual historical referent. It's not just a revelation of recurring patterns and principles. It has actual historical referent that uh, we will make efforts to identify as we go through the book this week. But God works in predictable recurring ways. You find that throughout the Bible that uh, you have a similar series of events that happen over and over again. Um, Jim, uh, Dr. Jordan, we're supposed to call you Dr. Jordan this week. Uh, Dr. Jordan has, uh, for example, written a good bit on Exodus patterns. Other people have done this too um, and shown that there are recurring Exodus stories in the Bible that have similar kinds of episodes, a similar kind of literary structure to it even though they're occurring with different people in different times and have somewhat different, uh, somewhat different details connected to them. You have uh, Abraham going through an exodus. You have Israel going through an exodus. You have the ark going through an exodus. You have Israel going through a second exodus as they go into Babylon and so on. So you have these recurring patterns. So if even, even though all those texts in the Old Testament are about events that took place, the exodus actually took place. Abraham actually did go to Egypt and then come back out. But those... Uh, that historical event becomes uh, becomes a type or pattern for future historical events. Uh, and so if even if we take uh, the book of Revelation in a preterist sense, that doesn't rob it of, of, of uh, enduring value. In fact, I think it gives it enduring value precisely because the, allegor- uh, the literal sense opens up into spiritual senses. You can say the literal sense or the preterist sense opens up into an idealist sense. You can see patterns that recur. Uh, and that's why you can find... Uh, Virtually any time period of history, people can say, look, it's happening. <laughs> Revelation is happening. We know it's happening. Uh, was, was the late medieval church actually uh, like the harlot Babylon? Yes. <laughs> uh, the late medieval church actually was like the harlot Babylon, who had, uh, had departed from uh, her first love and had begun to persecute true saints who tried to reform her. That's actually happening. So they're not wrong to make that identification, they're wrong to say that that's what Revelation is predicting, but because because Revelation is about a set of historical events and you have those those events themselves become types and patterns for later historical events. Uh, even futurist readings of the book, I think, can be incorporated into this uh, into this uh, outlook. If we uh, if we have the end of the old world, which is what we're arguing Revelation is about, uh, that gives us some hints about the uh, the way that this world, the world of this creation. Uh, will come to an end and how the final consummated new creation will come. So if we quadrigize, quadrigize Revelation, then I think we can incorporate insights from lots of different places uh, without committing ourselves to saying this book is about you know, the rise of Islam in the 21st century or the book is about the collapse of the Western Empire in the 5th century. That's not the case, I don't believe, but we can see patterns that are recurring because it's about a particular set of historical events that took place in the 1st century. I think Revelation is also uh, theologically fruitful in uh, perhaps in ways that uh, 
uh, haven't been fully explored. At least I haven't found a lot of places that fully explore them. Uh, obviously, it's going to be important for our understanding of eschatology. And uh, then, but when when you understand eschatology as being kind of at the root of the gospel, the good news is a good news of a new creation uh, being begun in the midst of the old creation, uh, resurrection life being available in the midst of this old world. Uh, if that is the gospel, then eschatology is right at the center of the gospel. Uh, and the promise that God is going to bring his work that he began to fulfillment is part of the gospel. So, uh, And as, uh, uh, as you know, eschatology can, uh, is hugely important for our outlook on all kinds of things, uh, whether we uh, are expecting Jesus to come back any time, whether we're expecting uh, to be relieved of responsibility for this world when it gets to its worst, we're going to be caught up and escape, or whether we believe we're called to witness faithfully in the midst of uh, challenges and difficulties, and God is actually going to bless those wit- that witness and bring fruit from that witness, uh, that uh, the, our hopes about the world affect our actions a great deal. So eschatology is huge. Uh, but there are other, uh, a lot of other things that are uh, important for uh, uh, theological themes that come out of Revelation that uh, we'll touch on this week, but uh, won't be able to develop fully. But it, I want to alert you to the fact that these are important features of Revelation. Now, one of the more biblically oriented one is that I think uh, Re- Revelation has been underread. I'm not sure that's the term I want to use. Let me just say this. I think Revelation is, the reading of Revelation has been distorted, and the reading of the Gospel of John has been distorted by the separation of the two in modern scholarship. I'll talk later in the week about um, the authorship of Revelation and whether the so-called seer John that we find in the Apocalypse is the same as the evangelist John, and perhaps is that the same as the epistolary John. Are these completely different people uh, with different name, with the same name, that's that's a question that's been uh, debated, and it's not just been debated in modern scholarship. Uh, from the fourth century or so, there were doubts raised about Revelation and whether Revelation was written uh, came from the same hand as the Gospels and the Gospel and the Epistles of John. I think they came from the same hand, and I think it's uh, it's done a great damage to our understanding of both Revelation and the Gospel of John to separate the two. Everyone knows that Luke and Acts function together as a two-volume work. Uh, Luke makes that obvious by addressing Theophilus, not Theopolis, but Theophilus at the beginning of each book. And you get, you know, once, you, once you see that beginning, then you see all kinds of parallels, and you can see that the books function together. And you really don't have the whole gospel story from Luke until you get to the end of Acts. Uh, but people don't read John and Revelation that way. I'm, I want to hint at uh, the possibility, the hint uh, is, I don't think it's a possibility. I think it's an actuality. I'm going to hint at it, uh, the, the fact that that needs to be done with John and Revelation. That's for a later lecture, uh, later in the week. But I think that's, that's, that's important. So Johannine theology that doesn't incorporate the book of Revelation is just uh, a, uh, a truncated Johannine theology. I'm going to suggest, too, that there's a, a good deal of Trinitarian theology in the book of Revelation. Uh, this kind of uh, uh, flows out of the previous point. John is the source of some of the richest Trinitarian theology in the New Testament. I think the entire New Testament is rich in Trinitarian theology in ways that uh, we often miss. But uh, the Gospel of John is uh, the most obvious Trinitarian source uh, in the New Testament. And so if there, if John and Revelation work together, then we should expect to see some kind of Trinitarian uh, things going on in Revelation as well. I'm going to suggest uh, that that's the case. Uh, and I, uh, not in, they're not in 
traditional categories. They're not in the categories that we find either in the Gospel of John or in later dogmatic formulation. Uh, but there are Trinitarian patterns that are recurring in Revelation that uh, do illuminate our understanding of the Trinity. I'll mention some of those in the lecture this morning. I also think that um, I've been working on the atonement a good bit uh, over the last uh, year or so. I think that there's a, a great bit, a great deal of atonement theology, an important aspect of atonement theology that we miss if we don't incorporate revelation. And again, this is related to the John Revelation connection. Uh, if you read the books together, then you can see that the uh, witnesses to Jesus in the book of Revelation are being joined in and follow, they're following the lamb who goes to slaughter. Uh, and the uh, work that Jesus does in his life, death, and his resurrection is worked into the lives of the early witnesses to Jesus. That's what Revelation is about. Uh, uh, martyrdom is a huge theme, as I'll talk about later in the week. But those, that martyrdom of the first witnesses, that martyrdom of what's called the First Fruits Church, is part of God's work of bringing in the new creation. The temple does not fall when Jesus dies on the cross. The uh, the veil of the temple is rent. You could say that's a virtual collapse of the temple. Uh, that's a sign that the temple is no longer functioning as it once did. It, a temple that's open to the public is no longer functioning as a temple. It's become a museum piece. It's become a church <laughs> um, instead of a instead of a instead of a temple that's designed to keep people at a distance from God's presence. It's opened up so that people can go in. Um, that happens at the death of Jesus. But the temple still stands. You have this, you have this uh, mixed uh, period when uh, Christians are still going to the temple. Uh, we see that in the book of Acts. Uh, you have this, uh, you have this uh, overlap of Jews and Gentiles, uh, Jews and Christians uh, in, in the book of Acts. And it's really not until you have the collapse of the temple that you have a definitive end of the Old Covenant system in its public form. It's over in principle with the death of Jesus. It's over publicly and historically with the collapse of the temple. And the collapse of the temple is all bound up with the suffering of the martyrs. Okay? That doesn't happen when Jesus dies. The, the temple doesn't collapse then. It's torn down, uh, as uh, uh, will argue, uh, Jim primarily will argue, when the blood of the martyrs uh, is poured out on the city, calls up the avenger of blood, who avenges the blood of the martyrs, and the city that drinks the blood of the martyrs is overthrown. I think that has to be incorporated into atonement theology. Because the atonement is about Jesus' death and resurrection, bringing in the new creation. But that comes in in historical fact through not only the, uh, not, not only through Jesus' work, but the incorporation of the first fruits of the church into that work. Okay. I'm not going to say a whole lot more about that um, uh, this week, but uh, I imagine that that raised some questions that you might want to explore. And we can do that in seminar, or we can do that during the breaks and so on. Uh, one last uh, point before I uh, dive into the passage uh, and start talking about um, contemporary scholarship on Revelation, and that is that Revelation is uh, is a is a practical book. Uh, one of the great uh, great values of Jim's work on Revelation over the years is to demonstrate this to show that there are uh, that it's uh, it has practical implications, not in the sense again that dispensationalists would typically think that it's uh, being applied directly to the events surrounding us. But it's practical in what it teaches us, for example, about worship. Uh, it's practical, especially, I think, in what it uh, shows us about the, uh, the call to witness, to bear martyria, and also the effects of faithful martyria. Again, martyrdom 
Uh, faithful witness is a key theme of Revelation, and Revelation is showing us, demonstrating uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in vivid form, the dictum of Tertullian that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs uh, poured out faithfully, uh, mingled with the prayers of the martyrs. The blood of the martyrs mingled with the blood of Jesus and mingled with the prayers of the martyrs is what brings down old worlds and brings in a new world. Okay. I have a, an outline in your notes uh, of the first ten verses or so. Actually, it goes through verse 20 or uh, 16 or 20, depending on how you read it. That's uh, modified from a paper I heard at an ETS meeting on the outline of Revelation. Uh, that's just for your information. I won't take time to go over that in any detail. Uh, what I want to talk about for uh, probably the rest of uh, this portion of the lecture is apocalypse. Apocalypse is the first word in the Greek text of Revelation. And apocalypse has become a major theme of uh, biblical studies uh, and also of theology. And I want to sort through those issues and then talk a little bit about uh, what uh, what uh, the book of Revelation means by apocalypse and how that uh, works out in, as it's uh, as it's given to us in the in the opening verses of the book. Uh, in biblical studies, ap- apocalypse generally refers to a genre of literature. Uh, this is a definition that was given uh, some years ago in the journal Semea. Uh, a group of scholars who had been uh, working on apocalypse for many years came up with this definition of the genre of apocalypse. It's a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality, which is both temporal, insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation, and spatial, insofar as it involves another supernatural world. Okay. Several features of that uh, definition. First of all, the apocalypse is understood to be a particular genre of literature. There are prophetic books uh, that are not considered apocalyptic uh, apocalypse by this definition. What makes it an apocalypse is not just that it's prophetic, predicting something in the future or from a prophet, uh, but really has to do more with the way that the revelation is given. You know, when you read when you read uh, Jeremiah or Isaiah. Uh, you don't have any indication that there's a guiding angel that's showing Isaiah and Jeremiah what they're seeing. Uh, you do have that in portions of Zechariah. You do have that in portions of Ezekiel. Um, at least John, uh, Ezekiel sees, sees these visions and he sees the, uh, the, uh, the future temple being laid out and so on. So you have this, you have this supernatural otherworldly being that discloses these things. So the, the revelation comes through an otherworldly being. That's one mark according to this definition of an apocalyptic writing rather than just a prophecy. Uh, It also discloses what they call a transcendent reality, something that's not empirically visible. And by this they mean uh, both temporal, that is, there are future things that are being disclosed by this otherworldly being to a human recipient who's then writing them down and passing them on to readers. Um, It can be a a trans-temporal reality, something that's uh, beyond uh, the, the current stage of history, or it can be a transpatial reality, a trans-earthly reality. So some apocalypses uh, that fall under this definition are not predictions of any future events. Uh, they're not talking about the future uh, of the human race or of human history, but they're instead uh, uh, journeys through heavenly 
heavenly places, journeys through a series of heavens. Dante's on the mind for some reason. Paradiso is an apocalyptic, I guess, in this, uh, in this, uh, by this definition. It's something disclosed. It's not empirically visible. I guess Beatrice is a supernatural being, an otherworldly being, that is able to uh, uh, lighten Dante enough so that he can soar up through the heavens and he can take a tour of the different spheres of the heavens. That makes an apocalypse. So it can, it's not necessarily temporal. It's not. It could be. It could be spatial, but something that's disclosed that's not available to normal human investigation, uh, not in, available to no, normal human senses. Uh, along with this, uh, it's characteristic of uh, recent scholarship to talk about apocalyptic language. Apocalypse. Uh, the genre of apocalyptic is marked by a certain use of language, certain use of uh, imagery, certain kinds of motifs. Uh, many scholars relate them to mythological motifs. So you've got dragons and uh, other strange, uh, other strange uh, mythological figures that appear in apocalypses. You have uh, again otherworldly beings, but you also have the use of la- the use of uh, bizarre and uh, an excessive language to describe historical events. So, for example, our entry right is, is uh, as far as I can tell, is expressing what is the consensus of, apocaly- of how apocalyptic language works among New Testament scholars when he says, uh, Matthew 24, when it's talking about the collapse of the heavens and talking about the falling of the stars, is not talking about the end of the space-time universe, as is often thought by, uh, by literalist readings, but it's using apocalyptic language, using the language of the end of the world to describe the end of a world, to describe the end of a particular phase of history. In biblical studies, you not only have apocalypse used to describe a particular genre, but you also have it to describe a particular outlook on the future. Uh, and here there is some difference of opinion, which uh, I find uh, interesting. One, uh, it's, it's, it is common to identify apocalyptic eschatology as an eschatology that expects a, uh, an imminent end to the physical universe. Uh, when Ernst Kaseman uh, talks about Ernst Kaseman talks about apocalyptic as the mother of Christian theology, as he does. Uh, that's what he's talking about. He's saying that the early Christians expected the end of the world in the in the uh, in the near future, and so that that pressure of a coming apocalypse, of a coming end, is what shaped their outlook on the world. It's what shaped their entire theology. So uh, when Paul, uh, for example, Kaseman is mostly a Pauline scholar, when Paul talks about, when he indicates that the, the world is not yet subject to God's will, but that subjection has already begun, Kaseman sees that as an indication of apocalyptic, of an apocalyptic eschatology. There's an already dimension to it. God is already taking dominion of his world, but he's not yet fully taken dominion. But he will soon. But there are also uh, scholars who suggest that apocalyptic eschatology does not really have to do with the imminence of the end, but rather with the fact that the, uh, the final reckoning of things is going to take place outside the current, uh, the, the current uh, stage of history, that uh, the final judgment is going to transcend this particular phase, or that there is a final judgment that's of a different quality from the historical judgments and historical reckonings that take place in the course of history. Uh, so apocalyptic eschatology on this view is just a confession of final judgment, whether or not that's near or not. It's just a confession that uh, God will sort things out at some point, 
all the injustices of the world raise uh, expectation and hope that uh, God will finally sort things out, and that's what uh, apocalyptic eschatology promises. There has been uh, a good bit of resistance to this understanding of apocalyptic eschatology. Probably the most thoroughgoing has come from Christopher Rowland in a book called uh, The Apocalyptic Imagination. And Rowland argues that uh, apocalyptic literature is not uh, about eschatology. It's not necessarily eschatological at all. That is, it's not about the end of time being near. It's not about a final judgment. It's not a review of history or a prediction about history. Rather, the thing that binds all of the uh, literature that's known as apocalyptic literature together is the fact that it discloses some mystery through, uh, through a direct revelation of God or through some kind of mediated means through an angel or so on. The unifying factor, he says, which joins Daniel and Revelation, for example, and separates them from other contemporary literature, is the conviction that runs through both that man is able to know about the divine mysteries by means of revelation so that God's eternal purposes may be disclosed and man, as a result, may see history in a totally new light. Okay, So it's not talking about the end. It's not talking about eschatology per se, but it's talking about this uh, fact of disclosure. Another place in the, uh, the apocalyptic imagination, he says, we ought not to think of apocalyptic as being primarily a matter either of a particular literary type or of a distinct subject matter, though common literary elements and ideas may be ascertained. Rather, the common factor is the belief that God's will can be discerned by means of a mode of revelation that unfolds directly the hidden things of God. Something's hidden, and, and that hidden thing is disclosed, uh, and that's what marks the, the various literatures, that, uh, the various uh, texts that are considered apocalyptic. In addition to apocalypse as a genre, which is a, a questionable, uh, a questionable uh, category even, even among scholars, uh, it's, it's a debated category among uh, biblical scholars, there's also an uh, investigation of what's called apocalypticism, okay, which is not just in... Uh, it's not just describing a, a genre, but describing a particular outlook on the world that is supposed to be reflected in uh, the genre of apocalypse. So apocalypticism is the worldview that apocalypses embody and instantiate. And apocalypticism is um, usually summarized in terms of several specific things are seen to be characteristic of apocalypticism the belief in angels and demons and the fact that angels and demons have a regular contact with and effect on the world that we can see with our uh, that we can perceive with our senses we don't see angels and demons acting but we know that they have an effect on the world that would be uh, that that's a part of an apocalyptic apocalyptic worldview there's a dualistic view of reality and particularly an ethical dualism there's a stark difference between the forces of good and the forces of evil, between darkness and light, almost uh, in some cases a kind of Manichaean uh, cosmology and uh, pitted uh, darkness and light against each other. There's a dissatisfaction with the world as it's presently constituted. The world as it's presently constituted is is uh, off kilter. Things have gone wrong. And so uh, the ap- apocalyptic worldview is pessimistic about how things are now and uh, looks to and predicts that uh, God will intervene somehow to bring it uh, to set things right. Apocalypse also frequently, apocalypticism rather, uh, also frequently, uh, according to this viewpoint, 
uh, includes the idea that the uh, the righteous, those who are ultimately rescued and ultimately vindicated, will have to go through a period of suffering and tribulation before they reach that period of glory. So uh, through tr- much tribulation comes the kingdom is a theme of this apocalypticism. When you summarize it that way, it's hard to see exactly how this is different from religion, <laughs> uh, which generally believes in unseen beings who affect reality, generally believes in good and bad, and see, uh, can see it pretty starkly, generally believes that the world as it now exists, is, there's something wrong with it, and it needs to be put right. So, but those are, the, those are the kinds of things that apocalypticism is said to embody. <clears throat> there's also a more sociological dimension to this in some writers uh, that try to uh, connect apocalypse as a genre and apocalypticism as a worldview uh, with a particular social location. So apocalypticism is said to come out of disaffected marginal groups, sometimes persecuted groups, alienated groups, perhaps groups that are uh, resentful of their exclusion of being uh, of being uh, put down and persecuted, uh, and apocalypse is a kind of grand uh, revenge uh, fantasy. You know, this, finally, the, our persecutors are going to get theirs. So uh, you'll find a, a good bit of uh, recent work that tries to locate apocalypticism and apocalypse as a genre in that setting. Probably um, less well-known is uh, the, the influence that apocalypse has had, that caught the idea of apocalypse, and particularly the idea that well, I'll explain what I mean by this. The, the, the idea that the, uh, an idea of apocalypse has had on theology, not in biblical studies, but in among systematic theologians or dogmatic theologians. This is partly because of the influence of biblical studies on on these theologians. Uh, one New Testament scholar who's had a significant uh, influence in this area is J. Lewis Martin, who has written a commentary on... Galatians, and written a number of other uh, sets of essays. I think that's the only commentary. He he wrote the Anchor Bible commentary uh, on Galatians. Um, And uh, Martin presents what he describes as an apocalyptic understanding of Paul. Uh, And by that he means that Paul is announcing the the intervention of God from outside. uh, uh, N.T. Wright talks about uh, uh, trying to uh, makes sense of uh, Paul and the New Testament as both covenantal and apocalyptic. So there's this uh, there's this smooth fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament, what was promised to Abraham, uh, and that gets fulfilled. So it comes to a culmination. You can kind of see a storyline going. Uh, but uh, Wright says that there's also this apocalyptic dimension where God comes in from the outside, and even though Jesus fulfills the covenant, he does it in a surprising way. That surprise is the apocalyptic element. Uh, Martin is a more thoroughgoing apoc- apocalyptic. Or at least he, he sees a, a more thoroughgoing apocalyptic pattern in Paul. He thinks that uh, Paul is announcing the intervention of God from outside the world, uh, surprising its upsetting of all settled systems, of all settled dogma, of all law, and all fixity. And this is one of the reasons why it's become uh, a popular uh, a popular way of, uh, or a popular theme in contemporary theology. It's seen as a way to challenge systematizing and fixity and conservatism and there's a there's a, a, a kind of continuous apocalyptic that's that's seen that this, this is this is what christianity is about anytime it gets settled into anything fixed anything regular then it's abandoned it's uh, it's uh, it's genius um, 
I won't take time to read any of it, but uh, uh, if you want to have some, if you want to have some fun, uh, reading uh, reading a book review, you can have fun reading a book review. It's the right, if it's the right reviewer with the right book. But uh, Robert Jensen, Lutheran theologian, uh, wrote a review of uh, Nathan Kerr's Christ History and the Apocaly- and Apocalyptic in Proclasia a number of years ago, and had great fun writing it. Uh, this was his concluding comment, just to give you a flavor of it. Uh, Kerr's book represents the perfection of what Bart might have come to think, he says, if Bart had not been so concerned for Scripture. <laughs> okay. There was another great line here about, uh, I, don't, I didn't have it down. Anyway, so um, uh, Nathan Kerr is one of a uh, group of younger uh, theologians who's using apocalyptic uh, categories. And again, it's the, the thrust of it is to, uh, is, apocalyptic is inherently unsettling. And unsettlement is what the gospel is about. If you get settled, then you've abandoned the gospel. Even settled into, uh, Jensen is kind of appalled that uh, Kerr would write about worship and liturgy without ever mentioning baptism or the Lord's Supper. He says, this comes from somebody who has presumably read the New Testament, he says. (laughs) When you get into your your 80s, you can write uh, book reviews like that. I guess you can do it in your 60s, right, Jim? Yeah, you can start in your 60s. Okay. So that's all, that's all background, contemporary discussion. Uh, there's, lots of, there's lots of work being done on this. Um, uh, this is just a brief summary of some of the things that, are, that have been done. What does apocalypse mean here in Revelation? This is, the, this is the, first, the first word of the book. It's the name, the Greek name that was given to the book uh, early on. What does apocalypsis mean? And I think uh, uh, Rowland's point, I think, is, uh, is essentially right, that it's not about uh, eschatology, per se. That's not what the word connotes. Uh, the word connotes, rather, uncovering, unveiling, disclosure, uh, the manifestation of something that's been hidden. If you look at the way the term, the, the, just the word is used, uh, the word group is used in the Septuagint, you'll find that it's used in a number of places where it's just a literal uncovering. So Leviticus 18, the passage that's about uncovering, it's about sexual sin. Should not uncover the nakedness of uh, your uh, father, which is, uh, uh, which is the nakedness of your mother. Okay? All through that, the word apocalypto, the verb apocalypto is being used. A literal uncovering of something that should be hidden and should be covered. Uh, the woman who goes into uh, take the jealousy test that, that Jim is going to talk about this afternoon, jealousy this afternoon, uh, she uncovers her head. And again, that's the same term. When Paul uses the word apocalypse, as he does a few times, he's talking about something that has been hidden that is now disclosed. That might have implications for understanding of what's going to happen in the future, but it doesn't nece- it's not necessarily the case. It's just a, an unveiling or an uncovering. Uh, the apocalypse that John records here for us is an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And I think uh, uh, we should understand that uh, in, we should embrace the ambiguity of the genitive there. Uh, it's an apocalypse of Jesus Christ in the sense that Jesus Christ is the one who is being unveiled. Okay, It's Jesus who is being unveiled in his glory. Uh, you'll see that uh, at the end of uh, chapter 1, I believe Jim is going to cover that original vision of, uh, of uh, John later in the week. So it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, um, but it's also an unveiling that Jesus Christ performs. I think we can take it both ways. Uh, it's not, not just the unveiling of Jesus Christ himself, but it's the unveiling Jesus Christ performs. And what's interesting with, in, in the, when you put those two together, you can see the, 
importance of the, the full scope of Revelation or the direction, the trajectory of the full scope of Revelation. Because Jesus himself is disclosed and unveiled right from the beginning of the book. So if you're just looking for Jesus to be unveiled in his glory, well, you can end at the end of chapter 1. What happens in the rest of the book is ultimately the unveiling of not Jesus but the bride. Okay, uh, At the climax of the book, it's the bride that's descending from heaven. It's the bridal city that's being described. That's what's been disclosed. That's The curtain has been drawn back on the bride. So the uh, unveiling that's taking place is an unveiling of Jesus Christ, but also an unveiling performed by Jesus Christ. We put those two together, I think, Ephesians 5. Uh, the unveiling of the bride is the fullness of the unveiling of Jesus, okay, the unveiling of the totus Christus, the unveiling of the bridegroom and the bride uh, who are one flesh with one another. This is also an unveiling of things that must shortly take place. Uh, so it's an unveiling of the usually hidden future. So there is a time dimension to it that's given to us right there at the beginning of Revelation. Um, I'm just, the, the word itself doesn't contain the idea of time necessarily, but it, uh, in context, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus disclosing his glory. It's Jesus disclosing his full glory by unveiling his bride. And it's Jesus disclosing what will shortly take place. It's the word must that makes that phrase so difficult for me. What will shortly take place is easy. What must shortly take place? That's, I, get all, I get all garbled on that. <laughs> yeah, what's got to take place? Yeah. <laughs> so in, in uh, Revelation 1, we have an order uh, to this unveiling. This unveiling takes place through a sequence, uh, kind of, uh, there's a, uh, a traditio, there's a, ha- a tradition, a handing on uh, from one to the other until it gets to us, the readers. Uh, and this is described in a couple of ways in uh, verse 1. This unveiling or apocalypse is given by God to him, which is Jesus Christ, to show to his slaves. So we have a, an order that comes from God the Father. God the Father gives the revelation, the apocalypse, to Jesus Christ. Okay. And then that's given to him in order, in order that Jesus can disclose something. So uh, I think we can read this in terms of John 5. Jesus says that the Son sees what the Father is doing. He does nothing but what he sees the Father doing. And then he comes and does what he sees the Father doing. Uh, and so when you see Jesus, you can see the Father. The Father giving Jesus the apocalypse, the unveiling, the disclosure. That's the Trinitarian pattern that we find also in John 5 or Matthew 11, where Jesus talks about his, his exclusive, intimate relationship with the Father uh, and the power he has to disclose the Father to whomever he will. Okay, So the Father is giving Jesus the power to show things to his slaves. Um, of course, slaves don't know what the master is doing, John says, uh, or Jesus says in John. Uh, when slaves have what the master is doing disclosed to them, then they're being elevated to friends. That's what Jesus, uh, Jesus in the upper room discourse, uh, slaves don't know what the master is doing. I do not call you slaves, I call you friends, because I am disclosing what I'm doing. Revelation is in sense... A, an elevation of slaves to friends. It begins with the language of slaves, and there's lots of talk about bond slaves. The word slave is used, doulos is used, uh, I think, 14 or so times through the course of the book. So that's, that language doesn't drop off. Uh, but uh, the fact that there is a disclosure from uh, Jesus to his slaves, 
means that there is an elevation to friendship. Uh, and that's, that's going to be a major theme of Revelation. We're going to see uh, the saints are going to be elevated and begin to share in uh, the rule of God, the judgment of God. They're going to, sh- they're going to have thrones. Uh, that's the promise that Jesus gives uh, early on, and it's fulfilled in uh, Revelation 20 uh, with the uh, millennial vision of saints and martyrs on the thrones. That's an elevation of uh, slaves uh, to the position of king's friends, king's advisors, co-judges and co-rulers along with Jesus. Uh, another phrase in verse 1, though, kind of focuses in on the middle part of that. You have God the Father gives to Jesus to show to his slaves. So you've got a three-term passing on. The Father gives something to Jesus, the power of unveiling, which Jesus then discloses to his bondservants, to his slaves. And then in the end of the verse, though, we have Jesus. He sent and signified it by his angel to his bond slave John. So you can see the uh, diagram this. This is the initial ordering, and then this opens out. So it's Jesus through his angel to John. doing the whole thing, it goes to the slaves through the mediation, not only of Jesus, but Jesus and his angel who gives it to John, and then John records it and passes it on to uh, his readers, which include us. Okay. Um, who is this angel that gets stuck in the middle there? Okay. This makes it an apocalypse, right? You've got an, you've got an angelic mediator, an otherworldly being who's mediating information to John. It's fairly common to understand that as um, a guiding angel, an angel that's pointing things out to John. And you do have that later in the book, in chapter 10 and on, you have a a few times that angels address John and tell him things. You have a couple of places where John talks to elders, to uh, presbyteroi. Those are, I think, uh, probably better translated as ancient ones, and they are the... uh, Chief priests, the chief heavenly priests, the the uh, ancient heads of the heavenly liturgy. So you have John, uh, uh, John, that uh, receiving information from elders and angels at various points in the, in the book. That doesn't seem. Uh, it, there's not enough of that, though. It seems to justify the way that John speaks here in the first verse. Jesus sent, communicated by his angel to his bondservant John. That sounds like a summary of the way that the revelation, uh, the apocalypse as a whole is taking place. The way the unveiling uh, that's the, the entire book is, uh, all the visions are taking place, not just the few scattered times when John actually is addressed by or addresses an angel. So th- I'm not sure that that works. And it, it seems to me that what we have here, instead of uh, just a, uh, a, a stray reference to a spirit angel um, as a mediator, that does happen. But I think instead what we have is uh, the word angel, angelos, being used as a way of describing the spirit. Uh, So we have, uh, by that account, I'll give a a little bit of an argument for that, but by that account we have a fully Trinitarian disclosure comes from God the Father, which gives to Jesus the apocalypse, which he mediates through his angel uh, to John and then uh, to the slaves. John is a slave himself, and then he uh, mediates it. He writes it for the benefit of other slaves. There are a few places in the New Testament where uh, the spirit of a person or the soul of a person is described as an angel. Um, 
in Acts 12 when uh, Peter comes banging on the door after he's been released from prison. Uh, and they, they've been praying for Peter to be released. You know, you know the comical story. You, you've heard the sermons on it. They're praying, and they don't believe that it's Peter. They don't believe their prayers have been answered. But Peter's banging at the door, and they, think that they see something that looks like Peter, and they think this must be his angel. Um, or it's referring to his spirit. Um, and Matthew, is it Matthew 18, talks about the angels uh, that, uh, angels of uh, uh, little ones that uh, constantly uh, behold the face of God. So there's another place where it seems that angels, angelos, is being used to describe soul. Um, I think that's, um, uh, I think that's likely what's going on here. And so we have a fully Trinitarian, uh, order of disclosure, uh, with the, uh, spirit being described as the angel of Jesus. The fact that this is Jesus' angel, his angel, uh, I think supports that too. You can think of the Father having an angel, a messenger that is Jesus, the angel of Yahweh who is the messenger of Yahweh. But how does the messenger of Yahweh also have a messenger. Uh, if Jesus has his own angel by which he discloses things to John, then it seems that the, this is a reference to the Spirit. And I think we could we could spend some time spinning out how that works out in the rest of the book, the ways the, the ways the Spirit is described, and the connections that that draws. But just right here in the opening verses, we have the Spirit described as this as the seven spirits of God. He's described that way uh, later on, linked up with the eyes that are on the Lamb, which are linked up with the lamps that are burning before the throne, which are linked up with the lamps that Jesus is among, which are linked up with the angels of the seven churches. We have all those associations of seven uh, that are all rooted in the sevenfold spirit. Um, and um, angels of various sorts are linked, uh, uh, particularly, uh, I think, in uh, Revelation 2 and 3, uh, angels who are pastors and leaders of the churches. So um, that's, my, uh, that's, my, that's the way I'm reading this um, uh, disclosure at the beginning. This is an apocalypse, an unveiling of Jesus Christ, and it's an unveiling of Jesus Christ that is the work of the whole Trinity. All of God does what God does here. All of God is unveiling Jesus Christ, the, the Father giving to Jesus, and Jesus communicating it by his angel. A couple other things on that uh, that opening verse. Um, the, uh, the word show, uh, which is used there, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves. Uh, that appears at uh, significant junctures in the rest of the book. Um, it appears again at the beginning of uh, chapter 4 in four one. It appears again at the beginning of chapter 17, which is where John sees the harlot in the wilderness. And it's also in chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, when John is shown the bride. Uh, just tuck that information in the back of your mind for now um, when I get to the end of the morning session and talk a little bit about the structure of Revelation. That's going to be some supporting arguments. But those, the, those uses of the word show at those junctures help to support a, uh, a fourfold organization of the book as a whole. One last comment uh, on, the, on, the first, on the first verse, and that is uh, the fact that John is the recipient of this Apocalypse. He's the one to whom it is shown. He's the individual slave who uh, records the visions that he sees and records the words that he hears so that he can disclose them and pass them on to uh, the rest of the slaves of Jesus so that they can become king's friends. I'm going to talk uh, uh, toward the end of the week when I talk about John and Revelation and talk about the authorship question, which, as I've already alluded to, is is a debated question. But I think this is one place where 
reading the two books together in tandem is valuable. Because, of course, there is a John that appears very early in the book of John, in the Gospel of John. There's a John that's in the prologue of John. You all know this. A man came from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of that light so that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but he came to bear witness of that light. Okay. Um, you have uh, John identified twice here in the opening verses of Revelation. You've got a, another John. This, I'm not identifying the two. I'm not saying John the seer is John the Baptist. Uh, there have been efforts to try to connect Revelation to a, a John the Baptist community. Um, I don't think that's true. But if you read John and Revelation together, and I'm going to argue later in the week that they can read, be read in parallel, then uh, the introduction of a John at the beginning of the Gospel, the introduction of, of, the, of the recipient of the Apocalypse uh, in Revelation connects uh, John the Baptist with John uh, the Seer, who I think is the author of the fourth Gospel. Um, so what does that what does that give us? Well, I think it it, it opens up a couple um, opens up a couple of uh, themes that John the Baptist and John the John of Revelation share. First of all, I didn't uh, point it out, but if you go back to John one seven, which I was reading one six and seven, John the Baptist is said to witness the witness. I need, I need to read it again because I didn't I don't have the particular wording. He came for a witness that he might bear witness. He is a witness, and he bears witness. Two uses of the mar- martus root there in verse 7 of John. Uh, you have that same doubling up um, in verse 2 of Revelation. John, who bears witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. Unfortunately, uh, we lose the connection with the English translation there, but that's uh, marturia, which is the same as the verb to witness. He bears witness to the witness of Jesus. Okay. That same doubling is used to describe John the Baptist's work. Um, John the Baptist, we know, uh, introduces Jesus, identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, and John in Revelation is going to see the Lamb exalted into heaven. Uh, I think, uh, importantly, John identifies Jesus at the beginning of his gospel as the bridegroom. This is at the end of chapter 3, after he's already Jesus has already uh, performed the role of the bridegroom by providing wine at the wedding at Cana, uh, he's the, uh, John identifies him as the bridegroom, uh, and that uh, becomes a theme, a, a huge theme of Revelation, I think, the bridegroom uh, whose bride is being revealed and being prepared. I think um, the revelation of Jesus in his glory is, among other things, this is in the latter part of, of Revelation 1, is, among other things, a revelation of Jesus as bridegroom. I think this is uh, the poetic form of the description of Jesus is uh, is reminiscent of the poetic form of the uh, wasif passages of the Song of Songs. You got these two places where um, the uh, bride is described from head to foot; all her all the beauties of her body are being described and celebrated by the lover. Between those two, you have the lover himself, who is being described by the beloved. Uh, and uh, again, you have a head to toe and back to the head kind of pattern. That poetic form is. Uh, John is borrowing that for his description of Jesus. Jesus is being revealed as the Son of Man. He's being revealed as the Ancient of Days. There's lots of things going on in, Re- in Revelation 1, uh, 12 through 20. But among other things, he's being revealed as a bridegroom. But there is no bride. So, uh, John the Baptist identified Jesus as a bridegroom. There's no bride revealed in the course of John's Gospel. There are hints of a bride, but there's no final uh, revelation of the bride. 
And then he's disclosed as the glorified bridegroom at the beginning of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is about the preparation of the bride who is going to be joined to the bridegroom that's already appeared at the beginning. Okay. If I'm, I'm suggesting that there's a Trinitarian structure to the disclosure that's taking place, there's certainly a Trinitarian structure to the blessing that John gives, uh, beginning in verse 4. But it is an unusual Trinitarian structure, and this is one of the places uh, where I think we can, there's some uh, really interesting, uh, there's some insights we can gain into the character of the Trinity from uh, from this blessing. It's one of the places in Revelation where the uh, Trinitarian patterns are evident. John says, to the, John is to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Okay. Typical epistolary greeting, planted in uh, Paul a lot. And then there are three from phrases. Uh, apo. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits are before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and so on. Okay. So the grace and peace are flowing from uh, a threefold source. The seven spirits and Jesus Christ are easy to identify, which I think means that the first must be the Father. But he's being identified as him who is and who was and who is to come. That's all an identification of the Father. That's not, that is a triadic pattern, but in the structure of the blessing, that's, uh, being, that's a, that's a description of the Father. Okay. Uh, actually, the ungrammatical uh, better translation that, that reflects the ungrammatical Greek is grace to you and peace from he who is and who was and who is to come. It's not in the, it's not in the what should it be, accusative or the uh, genitive, but it's in the nominative. Okay? Uh, the father is being identified not as an object, but as a subject. And, it's, it, and you have this triadic formula for the father. The spirit, of course, is, is not just three, not just identified by three, but identified as the seven spirits, and then Jesus comes in, and you have a threefold title for Jesus. He's the faithful witness. He's the model martyr, the model witness that others will conform to. He's the firstborn, a kingly title, Psalm 89. Uh, but he's the firstborn from the dead, which means he's, it's a kingly title. Uh, his resurrection is his installation as Davidic king. He's, he, uh, if you read that, phrase in the light of Psalm 89, there's this Davidic dimension to it that comes out. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. So you have a triple title for Jesus, a triple identification of the Father and the seven spirits of uh, the seven spirits that are in between that. I think that uh, uh, suggests, I think, uh, that you have, um, suggests a certain way of understanding the Trinity. The Father is one person, and yet he is one of three and is the dwelling place of the others, he can be described in triadic terms as he who is and was and who is to come. Jesus is one person. He's the incarnate son. And yet he can be described in triadic terms as faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. And then the seven spirits, the uh, spirit is one person, and yet the, uh, the, the spirit has a heptamorous sevenfold character uh, perhaps best related to the pattern of his work. Uh, when the Spirit works, he works in structures of seven. And the patterns of uh, 
patterns of, of, of the creation week. Uh, that's the spirit hovering over the waters, the spirit and the word together uh, in a rhythm of seven producing the cosmos. Uh, seven, and we'll have, and then again, that's the root of all the other sevens that we find throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. So it's, it, I think what, uh, what John is hinting at, it's not a, it'd be too much to say that this is a teaching of John, but what he's hinting at is a kind of uh, a fractal uh, Trinitarian theology. So you look at any one person and you can't help but look at the others. Okay. This is, this is not, uh, Revelation 1 wouldn't be a proof text, but that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty standard thing to say. The Cappadocians all said that. Can't think of the Father without thinking of the Son and the Spirit, because the Father is Father only in that He has a Son, and He is the Father of the Son only by the Spirit. Okay. You can't think of the Son except as the Son of the Father and the one who gives the Spirit, who breathes out the Spirit, and so on. Anytime you look at one, you're getting this uh, trini- this triadic Trinitarian pattern. Every one of them discloses the full Trinity. And I think that's uh, John is hinting at that reality uh, in the way that he describes both the Father and the Son in these triadic ways. Uh, Jesus is also, in verse 5, he's being set up as the true form, the true form of witness. He's the true resurrected one. He's the true ruler of the kings of the earth. He's setting the pattern uh, that will be parodied and counterfeited by other figures in the book of Revelation. Um, There is a false witness. Uh, There is a false witness resurrected one, the sea beast who dies, uh, or the head of the sea beast that dies and comes back to life and is celebrated for that. Uh, the harlot is described as ruling over the uh, peoples and kings of the earth. Uh, Jesus is the true form of all that, but he's, this is setting up for the future, uh, for the, uh, the disclosure and revelation of the parody forms later on in Revelation. Uh, Jesus, not only is Jesus person, he's given three titles, Firstborn, a faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. But he's also his work is described in a triadic fashion. Again, if you're if you're taking the threes seriously as a, as a trinitarian pattern, then Jesus, uh, the threefold Son, reveals himself economically in a threefold action. Okay, so the work of God reveals the the character of God. The work of God is triadic, revealing the trinitarian character of God. Uh, he's one who loved us, who released us from our sins by his blood and made us to be kingdom and priests. Uh, this is uh, also, I think, uh, pretty obviously an Exodus pattern. Uh, God loves Israel for the sake of the fathers. He has pity on Israel in Egypt. Uh, he releases them by his blood, by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of the Passover. And then he brings them to Sinai to make them a kingdom and priests uh, and sons to the father. Okay, So Jesus is the... Uh, fulfiller of the exodus. He's the one who brings the final exodus. Okay. I'm kind of spun out from talking about apocalypse, but that was all kind of under the heading of apocalypse. Just to summarize before we take a break for a bit, apocalypse as a theme in contemporary uh, biblical studies and theology, we looked at that. My my, uh, understanding of what apocalypse means in Revelation and what it means in the Bible is primarily its disclosure or unveiling or a revelation of mystery. That could be mystery about future events. It could be mystery about the character of God. It could be mystery about Jews and Gentiles being joined together in one body, as it is in uh, Ephesians 3, uh, where Paul uses that verb. And then we looked at the uh, the way that the disclosure comes, the apocalypse comes, from God to Jesus to the slaves, from God through Jesus and his angel to John 
to the slaves, and that opens up this uh, Trinitarian, these Trinitarian patterns that we find in the opening verses. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.